Hey there, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Mort Nace is my guest today. If a running community has a soul, that's Mort. He is trail running in Western New York. As a general manager of a running store, MedBed Running and Walking Outfitters, the race director of one of the most popular trail races in the country, the Muddy Sneaker 20K Trail Run, and an accomplished endurance athlete in his own right, there isn't an aspect of the sport that he's not involved in. My buddy Jim Graham talks about the pull of kindred spirits, Mort is definitely that for me. So here he is, Mort Nace. Mort, welcome to the show. Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show. It's um, yeah, it's been a while since you and I have uh, caught up with each other. I know we um, we we tend to communicate in short little bursts of uh, right. of text messages or 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 email exchanges. Um, but this is really the first time in a while that we've had the opportunity to, to sit down and 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 talk. Um, you know, as I was reflecting back on uh, on our relationship and and how you and I came to to know each other, um, I realized there's there's a lot of that story that I don't know. I mean, there is there is sort of my side of the story in terms of how you and I uh, came to know each other. Um, but uh, but I'm eager to get your 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 side of the story. So just to sort of set it up for the listener. This is like the early 2000 and teens, I think. Um, and um, you drive a van full of friends from Western New York uh, eastward uh, to the New England area uh, in the middle of winter for a weekend of snowshoe racing, which included uh, the race that I was hosting at that time, the Kingman Farm Moonlight Snowshoe Race, one of the one of the only nighttime snowshoe races in the Northeast. But it just so happened that that weekend, um, I think there was a like a race Saturday morning. There was our race Saturday night, and then there was another race somewhere in the Northeast or or in New England on Sunday. Um, and uh, and again, I can't I can't recall uh, with any degree of of, of clarity exactly how that came to be. I think you might've reached out to me because we, we had, um, you know, the Kingman farm moonlight snowshoe race had a limited number of, of entrance spots. We, you know, we had to right. cap the field and right. uh, I think you had reached out to me so that, that that's about the extent uh, of my uh, recollection uh, of how this all came to pass. Uh, what do you, what do you recall about the early 2000 and teens and, and that weekend? Well, even going back a little earlier, New Hampshire just became a favorite place to come out and race. My first marathon, road marathon, goes back to 93, I believe, the Clarence DeMar in Keene, New Hampshire. Fell in love with racing in the area, and every so often I'd come out and do a trail race, or um, I'd find a reason to come out to New Hampshire and find just a local grassroots event. And I raced Kingman Farms. I mean, I discovered this night race. What a great idea. And then I also discovered the Winter Wild 
um, race series. So I'm going all that way. Might as well double up and race in the morning, race in the evening. And the experiences were, were just so cool. Great formats. The prizes afterwards were amazing. I think that's why a lot of my friends tagged along after that because the swag you guys gave away was was pretty cool. But then but more importantly, the experience, um, the unique uh, aspect of racing at snowshoe racing at night was so, so cool. So it didn't take a lot of convincing to get my friends come out. And then um, so I did that by myself and then realizing their limited entries, I reached out to you. I was like, hey, I've got this group. You know, hopefully we all get in. We will jump on uh, registration when it opens, but in, in case we don't, and of course, you know, you, you said we get and you, you um, made sure we got in and I, the number grew for a few years. I think I, I brought out just one friend in the beginning and then it became a handful of uh, from friends from our area that would do the whole thing. And occasionally we would run on Sunday mornings. The national championships were in Vermont. We did a preview of that race the snow is absurd that year, uh, well above our knees um, for that event. I think the last trip we made for this, we raced in um, Saratoga. So, yes, we filled the weekend really, really well. Um, good food, good friends, and the racing was incredible. Yeah, I had for, I, I had I had forgotten that um, uh, Winter Wild was a very common double for people and you know it, you, you you talk about uh, nighttime snowshoe racing being a unique experience and for sure uh it was uh but winter wild was equally as unique at that time um my friend chad denning who uh, sadly passed away a number of years ago chad uh, was the one that um uh, that created the winter wild series right this um this idea that um uh, he would host these events um, at uh, ski resorts. So he was guaranteed snow because he was racing on ski resorts. The, the catch was um, that these ski resorts were all about this uphill series. Um, uh, you know, you, you either skin and ski or you trek and snowboard or you, or you trek uh, up and down the hill, but you had to do it before first chair. Right. So these yeah. <laughs> so these race starts were, you know, sometimes 5 a.m. Uh, it was certainly before 6 a.m. in order to have all the competitors uh, up and down the mountain uh, before the mountain officially opened uh, for their uh, for their daily business. And so, um, uh, you know, again, as far as unique formats go, um, I'm not sure anybody else was doing that at that time. I mean, there, you know, this uh, this Randon A concept of 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 you know of of people racing up and down up and down mountains certainly existed before winter wild but but the fact that chad brought together all these dis different disciplines you know and he had categories the heavy metal category or the yeah. uh, uh or the the snowshoe category or the or the or the foot race category it was just it was just a unique experience um for sure and uh and what a great double right uh winter wild in the morning and then and then yeah. snowshoe racing um, in the evening, I know Mort that you were, uh, you were well connected to the snowshoe racing scene, um, back then. Um, what's your recollection of, uh, of Northeast snowshoe racing in the early 2000 and teens? Uh, what, what was the scene like back then, you know, you know, Western New York or, or, or here in New England? It's, uh, it, 
it had its we had some great times it um we also had some great snow that we seem to lack these days and that i think has done a lot to kill the enthusiasm but um no one was doing that when tim Murtowski and i started our races out here and the uniqueness of it and you know based on our climate i think a lot of our runners they they crave uh, variety and snowshoeing kept them on the same trails that they liked so much during the warmer months and discovered it was a killer workout, but um, it's just like play, but it's, it's tough without really beating you up. Um, so we had some big numbers for a while, you know, when, whenever the winters are better, the numbers are better. And um and that enthusiasm carried over. Our runners are willing to travel. We came out to the New Hampshire State Championships one year. Um, and that was such a ridiculous trip. We had such a good time. And the stories still continue. Um, so it was easy to convince our runners to travel all throughout the region. Saratoga is a haven for snowshoe racing as well. We would frequent that that space. Um, north of Syracuse saw it as well. So we've... Um, and then I had the opportunity to serve on the U.S. Snowshoe Board for a number of years and be involved with a lot of decision-making there around the national championships. And it was fun to, to then also travel to those races and see those communities and cross paths with a lot of the same faces. But the Northeast uh, really gets behind the sport. Um, and uh, we've, we've seen some fantastic numbers and growth for, for a while there. And then about five years ago, or so ago with winters waning. Um, we just haven't seen the same enthusiasm. And then, then we enter COVID and the lack of, a, and, and the inability to put on these events and we'll see where it goes going forward. Tim and I haven't put on a snowshoe race for the three seasons. And um, there are some other reasons around um, ensuring the events that, that we have to revisit that's become a challenge as well, but um, we'll see going forward whether we think it makes sense, but we just, and just haven't been asked either. You know, it seems to have cooled off. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pun intended. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we were, I think we were really fortunate um, in the, uh, in that sort of middle two thousands timeframe that um we had national championships in our in our backyard, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Vermont uh, Prospect Mountain. I think yep. uh, my my very good friend Tim Van Orden hosted the national championships uh, that one year. That was a that was a phenomenal event with just epic snow. Um, there uh, there was also a national championship in the Albany area. I think one year i know it was in new york state i can't remember exactly syracuse held them one year syracuse thank you um yeah. and i had the opportunity to race there as well so there was something about um you know having a having a national championship you know uh within driving distance uh which i which i think um uh helped the sport grow i always felt though that um snowshoe racing really was a regional sport um yeah. in so much as um, as much as as much as I was involved in snowshoe racing, uh, both uh, both personally as a as a participant and professionally as an event organizer, um, I just I just wasn't as likely to to take a trip to Wisconsin for a national championship or right. Oregon for a national championship. I wasn't going to drive to Pennsylvania for a snowshoe race, um, uh, you know, in in the middle of winter. Um, 
but the Northeast snowshoe racing scene was really vibrant at that time. And they're, you know, I mean, within a, you know, probably within a 90 minute travel distance from just about any of us, um, there was a snowshoe race just about every weekend, uh, in the winter at that time. Uh, and then to your point, um, at least for me as an event director, the, um, the, the fickleness and uncertainty of New England winters was such that um, there was no guarantee that we were going to be hosting events. I mean, as you know, snowshoe racing is very much condition uh, dependent. If there's no snow for us, that meant there was there was no there was no event. Um, and, and eventually that uncertainty just became too much of a variable for us to overcome as, a, as event organizers. And we decided to move away from the sport. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's been, it's been described to me and I, I, I believe this is true and I'm interested to get your take, um, that a sport like snowshoe racing really needs, it needs someone or it needs some group to drive it and, and to drive the enthusiasm behind it. Um, and when you have that person or you have that group that's, that's driving the enthusiasm, it's it's easier for people to get behind it and for, and for the sport to, to flourish. What, what are your thoughts about that more? Did you, did you see that or, uh, you know, during that time in Western New York, that there was either one person or one group that was, that was largely responsible for driving the enthusiasm? Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think in our area, um, our events and a couple of key people were that driving force, you know, they, their enthusiasm was contagious and uh we had it they were traveling literally every weekend to hit all the snowshoe races that they that they could and they had a lot of followers uh we once upon a time had a shop racing team that had well over 100 people um and yeah but there's a that that core nucleus um myself included, I think, is that we, it was easy to convince people to go out and play in the winter where they might otherwise hibernate. So it, uh, it, that is definitely a factor. I think is, uh, if you look at the national championships, mistakes might've been made going to some beautiful venues that had no racing population around it. So that didn't help the sport. I think you need to focus in on where are the greatest number of racers. And there is a good group in the Midwest, um, the Northeast, obviously, uh, they're growing numbers in pockets in the West, but I'm not sure enough to support a national championship. So I think it would be better served to focus where the biggest numbers are. But, um, and again, I've, I've traveled to some of these events and the venues are amazing, but then when you, the numbers suffered because there was no community in the immediate area, as you said, that most people are only going to drive a certain distance, even though it's a national championships, because you, you know, weather and other reasons are factors. Yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and that, I mean, that, that for me, that really speaks to, 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 to my thought that, that snowshoe racing is a, is, is a, is more of a regional sport than it is a national sport. And from, I mean, I really think that it's, um, it's, it's less about total number of participants and more about density of, of participants. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it may be, it may be in the Midwest or in the far West that there are perhaps more total uh, snowshoe racing enthusiasts, but they're so spread out <laughs> that to yeah. your point, there isn't a community. Now, I, I'm actually really glad you, you, you mentioned the word community because 
because that's a that's a good segue for um, uh, for the for the next part of the, of the discussion. And that's um, um, the 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 running and walking community in in the greater Rochester, New York area. Um, you've been the general manager of Medved Running and Walking Outfitters since 2002. Um, and, uh, and I'm, so I'm, I'm eager to, to, to hear about your experience, um, uh, in the, in the outdoor retail space, particularly over the last 18 months or so, two years, uh, yeah. or so, and, and, and some of the struggles related to, uh, operating, uh, and, uh, uh and continuing, uh, an outdoor retail, uh, business, uh, during the pandemic. Um, but, but, but let me, let me, let me kind of, um, piggyback on that. That, that idea of community. So how would you describe the, the running and walking community in the greater Rochester, New York area? It's thriving. Yeah, we've got, and it continues to seem to grow a lot of new faces um, while still seeing some friends uh, that are still going after it after a, a number of years, but it, it's thriving and um, it's such a, fun it continues to be such a fun community i never tire of it you know it's a fun industry but the community is doing quite well um we've got our we had our training group kick off last night at the shop and seeing a lot of our regular faces but then a definite group of new faces that um people are chasing goals and i think that's uh we're seeing a lot of that coming out of covid people uh, challenging themselves and trying new things, new distances, if they were already runners or they're revisiting running, they've been away from it for some time and coming back to it. So um, as I said earlier, I think our community loves variety. You kind of have to if, as with the kind of climate we have. And I know um, people are riding for the first time. They are going off road for the first time. If uh, you know, they've been, strictly a road runner or a road cyclist for some time. So I think we've got a very active, vibrant community going on here. Mm. Um, you know, and it, 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 specifically in terms of, in terms of running in the, in the running community, um, how would you break down road running versus, versus trail running? Obviously there's some crossover, right? There's, there are people that run on both surfaces, both road and trail. Um, right. um, but, 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 you know, the, the running community sort of described generally, um, is it, is it 50, 50 road running and trail running? Is it, is it more geared toward road or more geared toward trail? What's your, what's your impression of, of how that, of how that breaks down? Oh, I'm so trail focused. It's easy to say that it's evenly split, but it's still has to favor, um, road running, but we have a lot to offer in our trail community and, I think it speaks to what you said earlier in that to having those those key people in place that offer enthusiasm. We have that here, too. So more people are trying trail or going a little further. We've got a strong ultra community and uh, I hadn't thought I'd want to run a 50K. But you know what? Everybody else is doing it. So um, we've got some great events going on that drive that enthusiasm, not only immediately in Rochester, but you extend it a little further out to include Ithaca two hours from home. There's a, some great events and I think people are embracing that. Um, so that's definitely in my passion, but the road community is also doing quite well. Um, and we're seeing that eagerness as events return post COVID. Do you, um, do you see, um, 
uh, road running as as sort of the the principal introduction to the sport. In other words, people get into road running first, and then and then some people eventually discover trail running. Um, or or are you are you seeing a lot of new runners start with trail running? How do people get into into running as a sport generally uh, in, in your experience out there? I think most of the time they're just running out their door. Um, they just want to see they want to see how that feels for a couple miles and see if they can get going consistently consistently. But uh, the, the convenience of just running out the door, I think, is what's happening almost all the time. And um, it's interesting. To, it doesn't occur to a lot of people just to head into the park and then run on the trails until you see someone else doing it, or you've you've been in the shop and you and you hear about it. Um, so I think I think that's how it's happening most of the time. Yeah. And what what do you think? What do you think the most significant barrier to uh, participation is in terms of trail running? In other words. Uh, for people that exclu- exclusively run on roads, wh- what do you think their greatest hesitancy is to moving their running from on road to trails? Um, I think there's the injury factor. I think I could, you know, they're going to roll an ankle. Um, there's the safety issue of running, running in the woods by themselves. Um, I'd always argue that you're more likely to experience an overuse injury road running than you would running in the trails. If trails get gnarly, we know what happens. You slow down and you pay even closer attention to what's on the ground. Yes, you can get hurt, but we'll talk about overuse injuries 10 times as frequently as we'll talk about an injury suffered on the trails. Um, but I think, I think a lot of com- com- runners are uncomfortable running by themselves, whether they're going to get lost or um, just being alone and being uncomfortable with that. So that's where the shop comes in. We can we offer group runs both on road and trail and provide that community and company um, to introduce people to the trails. Um, We try to offer instruction at times as well, like to put people in a position to lead because it's easy. And some people are just more comfortable following and that's fine. That's all they want from it. Or some do want that instruction and actually have the ability to pay attention to where they're going so that the next time they could go by themselves. But, um, and I've, I've been there years ago, you need to run with a group and I have no idea where I went, put me back in the park. And, but that's a skill that was gained. And I, um, I, I don't hesitate to go out by myself just about anywhere and explore and read the trail, read the geography, read the sun. Okay. That's, I'm have an idea where I need to go back if it's a trail new to me. Um, but, you gain that's a comfort level that's gained, I think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think those gateway experiences are incredibly important. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I guess you kind of answered my, my next question, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll have you uh, expound upon it. And that is, you know, what, what role do you see uh, Medved running and walking outfitters playing uh, in the running community? Um, obviously there's the supply piece of that. We provide the shoes and the gear to make that a better experience. Um, so we have that, but I think we are, um, we're that enthusiastic group to encourage people to get out of their comfort zone again, take on, um, new challenges, go meet new friends. Do you want to, do you have another goal? Do you have a time goal? Well, we can help with that as well. We have coaches on staff. Um, so, we are both uh, 
the instigators as well as uh, the supply of, of um, all that they need head to toe that to, to enjoy whatever experience it is that they're after. Mm. Do you do you find that it's um, that it's a challenge um, trying to balance the um, the retail part, uh, like the the business part, the bottom line part from the from the community part, from the altruistic part? And do you do you do you find that 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 sometimes people have reservations about that? Like, in other words, there has to be an ulterior motive, right? <laughs> I mean, why why is the, why is the shop inviting us in for? you know, a, a shop night or, or a group run? Are they just trying to sell us something? How do you, how do you balance, how do you balance that? Your bottom line with truly um, providing, providing free, important services to the community. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we do need to sell stuff to, to exist, but um, I think it, uh, we come off as genuinely enthusiastic about our sport. And I think that, um, I think customers can pick up on that. You know, we don't have a list of, we don't have an agenda. You need a hydration pack now. This is great. Um, you know, we talk about the benefits of it and we use the stuff ourselves. And I think that comes through. Um, is, yeah, I think we're good at being authentic about our experiences with it. Or if we're not, we'll admit that too. I haven't used this, but um, I, I think that that makes the biggest difference is that we, we hope, and anyway, I hope that we are. Uh, genuine and you know we don't um, we're not a commission based sales you know we I don't have any reason to sell you a more expensive shoe I want to sell you the right amount of gear and in, in our conversations and you tell me what it is you wish to do that um, oh I think this can benefit your experience and this is why you know um, but I think uh, we don't hide our enthusiasm for our sport very well you know that comes through in the customer hopefully notices that. And that's, um, as long as we're being genuine about it, I think hopefully that's, that's the difference. Yeah. And that's, that's been my experience with, um, uh, with my local bike shop, uh, that, that I support, um, my, uh, interactions with them outside of the retail space and it's at cyclocross races in which, you know, they have, they have no interest in selling me anything. Um, when we, you know, when we're, when I'm, at their support tent at a cyclocross race, we're there just we're there to enjoy the experience, to enjoy each other's company. Um, now, I mean, and 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 those relationships, I think, that are built outside of the retail space makes me makes me as a customer far more likely to walk back into my local bike shop when yeah. I need yeah. a water bottle or I need service on my bike or I need w whatever fill in the blank that that. Uh, you know, product or service um, that they can provide to me. It's for me anyway, it's those relationships that are built outside of the retail environment, so to speak. Um, it's, you know, uh, cause they don't, they don't have to set up a tent at, uh, at orchard right. cross cyclocross race. And they don't have to invite me to, you know, to get, to get in under the tent when it starts to downpour. Uh, but they do. And you know what I mean? Like the, very open, uh, very welcoming, very genuine. So I, everything, everything that, that you describe, um, that's exactly the experience that I've had with, with my, with my local, local bike shop. You know, the, the last couple of years of course have been, have been difficult, uh, on many, uh, industry sectors as it relates to the pandemic. Um, you know, but, 
the outdoor retail space, I think, is 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 unique in that, um, you know, some seven million new Americans turned to outdoor activities in, in 2020, for instance. I mean, I I'm sure you saw this. I saw this on my local trails. There were a lot more people out and about enjoying Absolutely. the outdoor space uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, during that same time that there were a lot more people outdoors and recreating um, state and local mandates with respect to business operations made it difficult for, uh, for many retailers um, to operate uh, within that climate um, either, you know, either, you know, having forced shutdowns um, or um, limiting the number of customers in the shop. Um, so there was a, as you know, all, all, all very well. There was an incredible disruption uh, in the retail space over the last two years. Um, and let, let me let me hit you with one more thing before I uh, ask you about uh, how you guys did during the pandemic. Um, so uh, there's an organization, as I'm sure you're aware of, the Running Industry Association. And this this Running Industry Association had a survey in March of 2020. And it revealed 68% of stores, running stores, had to close, 50% had to lay off staff, and more than a quarter of those stores expected their year-over-year sales projections to be more than 80% down. In other words, those are pretty dire numbers for the, you know, the, 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 the running-specific uh, retail space. Uh, how did Medved do, uh, or how has Medved done over the last couple of years? We've weathered the storm pretty well, but uh, those challenges were all real. Uh, factory shutting down, so more people on the trail, fewer shoes to be had, and and yeah, we shut down for I believe it was about six weeks or so, and customers were slow to return. Um, we all those things you said. We did appointments only. And then we encourage appointments and customers are still reluctant to come in. A lot of curbside customer knows what they want. Uh, we had an online presence in the works leading up to this. So thankfully that was ready to go. And we hustled to uh, have the ability to sell online. And some customers took advantage of that. We're still learning a lot about that business two years later, but uh, thankfully it's there. And um, it's, it's been slow to come back. It's, uh, you know, we were already challenged by the number of customers who choose to shop online with all the resources they have. And I, I think it's customers are doing even more so. I mean, they, I think it trained them that how easy and more convenient it is. And um, so we're up against that. Um, our vendors are, are competitors of ours now, too. They found the selling direct to consumer. Um, Depends on the company, but some are working really hard at it and uh, they may they have product that they don't make available to us. That is a frustration that we're dealing with daily. Um, now we're interested, we're dealing with some interesting supply issues in that suddenly we're getting a glut of product suddenly shipping. We have orders that are stacked on one another. Like our, we're getting our March orders now, but we might be also getting our August orders at the same time. So where we, where we didn't have shoes, now we have more inventory and invoices that go along with that that um, we weren't prepared for. So it's, and to some extent, it's a good problem to have that we actually have product to show our customers. Um, this 
going into August tends to be a busy time of year. So um, I'd rather have that problem than have a lack of inventory problem. But those are challenges we deal with all the time. I have a friend in Colorado who owns a shop told me he was he's receiving 2023 orders. Somehow he's placed spring orders and they're showing up because uh, it's a current shoe from um, that particular brand. But uh, there's some crazy things that we're all experiencing. And um, thankfully, we've been OK, um, OK enough in that Dan Medved has um, decided to remodel his store after a year and a half of considering it. And we're we're temporarily set up in another space in our in our plaza. But uh, we are moving back on Sunday and we're excited to show our community our new place. It's the same place, but we stripped it down to the studs and it's going to be an entirely new look. So um, it's uh, that's where we are. And thankfully, 38 years since we opened our doors in 84, um, we are doing OK. Mm. Yeah, I, I want you to talk a little bit more about the uh, about the, uh, the the digital component uh to the business um I, many running stores had an online retail component prior to the pandemic you mentioned um that 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 was in development pre-pandemic so i'm what i'm curious about is um pre-pandemic you know so prior to 2019 before before any any of us knew what covid 19 was or was on our radar um why was there a move for for Medved, why was there a move toward uh, toward online sales? Can you can you recall what 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 what, what were you what was the vision at that point pre pandemic? Um, we felt that a number of our customers were simply unable to come into the store for a variety of reasons or just out of convenience. You know, there's that parent who's at home with young kids and they it's easy to hop online. I know what shoe I want and to order that shoe. Well, but many of, we believe many of them want to support local and uh, provide that resource for them. And some of our customers have moved outside the area. You know, I love Medved. I want to, and, and have that ability to order through us as well. Um, but to remain competitive, I think this is the big piece there. Um, knowing that, you know, the, the convenience of it is simply not going to go away. Um, you have a thousand places you can order the same shoe that you love already. Why shouldn't we be, you know, hopefully chase some of that business? Because uh, I really believe a lot of our customers, um, they still want to support us. They want to support local. And um, we wanted to provide them that opportunity. Mm. Did, um, did that surge in online sales? And I, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I can only assume... <laughs> That when you had to close operation or, or when you had to significantly curb uh, um, in-store shopping, that your online uh, sales likely increased uh, um, you know, yeah. based on based on your experience pre-pandemic. Did that did that increase in sales? Um, did, did that expose any 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 weakness? Um, in, in that, in that particular operation, um, you know, whether it was in terms of the website or whether it was in terms of, um, of, um, of processing web orders, or, I mean, what did you learn from, from that surge in, in digital sales? 
Well, there's a staffing challenge because the something like that requires a lot of maintenance. And then there are the orders. Someone has to fulfill them. Like, well, many of us are we're on the floor. Well, someone's got to get that in the mail. So, you know, there's that, there's definitely that piece where, you know, it isn't as simple as just shoes have been ordered. No, we have to pack it up and um, measure it, weigh it, all those, all those things. And um, how do we ship it? Well, we were using, we would have to then literally carry them to, UPS or, or the post office to do this thing. And then what we learned, the resources available so that we can create labels, you know, stuff we didn't know. And, but again, they're all, they, so we are more, we're much more efficient. Now we learned very quickly about supplies we needed to acquire and how we go about creating our own labels. Um, but you have to have staff dedicated to that. You know, all the, my whole management team, we all get text alerts when there's an order. So somebody can pounce and react to it. Because um, if you're not getting it out the door very quickly, well, you know, we're disappointing the customer. So we, uh, we, we learned a lot on the fly very quickly so that we were handling it efficiently. Um, it's been nice business. Um, you know, we've seen it drop off a little bit since we uh, reopened our doors, but it's uh, consistently there are there are orders and we have to work hard at both maintaining the website, but also reminding people that it's even there. You know, because there are a few more people that know that Amazon exists as opposed to Medved Run Walk uh, is out there. So, you know, if we want this business, we have to work hard and letting people know, again, that it's that it's there. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you um, you know, you, you you mentioned the challenge of competing with with uh, uh, with some of the manufacturers who are selling direct to consumer. Yeah. Um, so so how do you how do you how do you differentiate? Uh, you know, the, the sale of, you know, fill in the blank specific shoe. Um, why is there a benefit for me as a consumer? Uh, in other words, what do I get from buying the shoe from you versus just going on well, Reebok's website and I'm just, I'm making up a shoe manufacturer. <laughs> what, 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 how do you differentiate? How do you differentiate the sale uh, of a shoe for instance, how do you differentiate uh, from the manufacturer who is selling direct to consumer? I mean, I guess, what is a customer value? Do you value that a shop that puts on events? Do you enjoy our races? You know, for those to exist, well, the shop has to exist. Do you like supporting a local family-owned business? Um, Medved is a family name. It, you know, people have different thoughts as to where that comes from. But Dan Medved uh, took over the business from his father. And that's uh, where that, that comes from. Um, you, you know, we, I like to be aware that you can buy it everywhere. You know, we work really hard at being the reason that people want, need to come in the store, why Medved exists, because I like to think the person right next door sells the exact same stuff that we do, but we are the reason that you want to shop at Medved. You know, it's, um, it's, it's that high five at the end of the race. It's, um, I've got his coworker Maggie, who if you come in, she'll just go berserk if you just run your first marathon. And the enthusiasm we have for our people, the time, because um, the next, the time we take, the attention to detail, the uh, fit process, you know, because there, the time will come when the shoe you love and continue to order, it's going to change to where something's different about it, and you need a place to go where to revisit um, the shoe experience. Um, so 
and hopefully there's value in that to most customers and why we hope to continue to exist. So that's, I mean, I think the way I hear you describe it, you know, it really comes down to the MedBed story. Um, yeah. And so, and so how do you tell that story? And mm. do, do, do you, are you, are you constantly aware of needing to tell that story? I mean, if that truly is your differentiator, um, how do you get the word out about that story? How do you continue to tell the story of MedVed? Uh, and, and what are the challenges, uh, you know, to getting that story out there? I think the movie to discover the best way is taking care of the next person that walks through the door because word of mouth is huge. You know, it, um, I, I, I don't know you, and but hey, I'm Morton, and that's let's uh, wh why are you here today? And that's um, and you know if you you care for that care for that next person that walks through the door, I think that makes a big difference. You know, we you know we're active in social media, we send newsletters out, so we tell our story those ways as well, and we those are a bit, those are opportunities to show how enthusiastic we are about what we do but it's the one-on-one -on -one, face to face that um, is the ultimately the most important. Mm. I mean, I often think that, that um, sometimes the biggest challenge is, is just getting the customer uh, to interact with you the first time, right? Yeah. Because once you haven't, once you have the opportunity for a customer to interact with you, you can tell, you can tell your story. You can give them your why, uh, uh, mm -hmm. While you're not specifically, uh, you know, describing to them that this is how you differentiate yourself, um, but that interaction is your differentiator. That that's the advantage you have over direct to consumer, uh, who mm -hmm. who doesn't have that that story. Um, you know, you so so from a from a professional standpoint, um, obviously you spend you spend a great amount of time. Uh, uh, thinking about uh, running in the outdoor retail space, but but you also have a personal connection to in, endurance sports, and your um, your endurance racing resume uh, spans four decades and includes foot races of, of marathon plus distances, adventure races, mountain bike races, uh, and uh, as you describe walkabouts. I'm actually stealing that uh, that expression. I like that. Um, and these walkabouts have been on some of the highest and most technical terrain in the Northeast, including the Adirondacks and the White Mountains. Um, what more? Where did this passion for endurance pursuits come from? This personal passion. Uh, and I think it's the people I've surrounded myself with. Um, my parents, uh, my grandparents lived in the Smoky Mountains, and my parents made it a priority to go visit every summer and to. To frustrate my mother, I would often go off in the trails well ahead by myself, and she had no clue where I was. And that's an extension of that. And and um, Boy Scouts for a few years, and then discovering well, Tim Rutowski, You know, he's he's a big part of my story. Uh, he uh, he and I direct. We're the founders of Goose Adventure Racing. It was his idea to run Pikes Peak the first time. It's been his idea to um to do many of the things we've done the adventure racing piece um he's my teammate one of there are five of us now that um have the lead with goose adventure racing but tim and i um he's a big he's, he's a primarily responsible for a lot of what i've done had the ability to do as an adult um but otherwise i mean i'm part of a great community of people people that are up for just about anything and that that 
reflects in my training. I like the variety. Today, I feel like jumping in a boat and paddling. Tomorrow, I'll go to the gym. The weather, maybe the weather requires it doesn't require, but maybe because of the weather, I choose to work out indoors as opposed to outdoors. There is no bad weather, by the way. Um, Amen. And um, so I am part of a group of people that is up for just about anything. And it, it's not hard to put out, I'm doing this. Um, and to get a quick response, people that are up for whatever that might be. Um, Erica and I met because she, through a mutual friend, up for anything, I got a group of people to go run up and down Bristol Mountain. You know, I, that's not a particularly unique thing in our world that people are training up and down a mountain, but that's the kind of people I hang out with. And um, I, well, she showed up and she, you know, like-minded. Um, so yeah, that, I guess if that answers the question. That's. Mm. Um, yeah. I had a recently had a good friend um, tell me that, uh, you know, you're, your tribe is your vibe. Yep. So what's your vibe? Um, my vibe is getting out of my comfort zone, surrounding, keeping my, keeping people close. Let's go work hard all day and find a pint and eat well after and laugh about it. And then let's go do it again tomorrow. And I'm big on just chasing experiences, you know, and that, and that could be just about anything. But if I see something about event or a region that uh, I can't let it go um, and that um, that's what that's what drives me. Um, and I want it's much better shared. Mm -hmm. And I will do things solo, but these experiences are much better shared. And um, always. Yeah, totally. I, yeah. I totally agree with that. Well, speaking of experiences, you've you've raced uh, the Pikes Peak Marathon five times. Is that right, Mort? Yes, it is. Yeah, five times. Um, Pikes Peak Marathon, of course, being uh, being in Colorado. You live in in Western New York, so it's not as though it's in your backyard. Um, no. I'm curious what what is it about that race for you? Okay, Tim came up with this idea it just sounded really absurd. And a lot of people said, Oh, there's no way you're going to get that done. You know, flatlanders going out to run with this and all right, look, we're going to give it a shot. And I worked hard um, to, to get ready for that first one. And then it's just so different. And I think that's what's great about trail running is no matter where you travel, the trails are different where I'd argue a lot of times you go run roads anywhere. They tend to look the same. There's another, um, you know, there's the same fast food restaurants and, and trails, depending on the time of year you go, you know, the trails I run in here in July look totally different two months from now. So the animals are different, all of that. And Pikes gives you this great, it starts at 6,400 feet and in climbing the almost 8,000 feet to the summit, you just experience so many changes and it's, yeah, and it's hard. But then you go from these wildflowers and grasses to the scrub pines, to the rocks. And am I going to get to the summit? There it is. Turn around, go back down. And then you run these great gentle, some of it's not gentle, but the grades in the middle are very runnable. Um, and it just throws a lot of variety at you in, in one, in one run. And, uh, 
and it's kind of it's just kind of a magic run that uh yeah I went back four four more times afterwards different times and uh it's it's cool and i just recently said that it's something i need to get back to you know sorry <laughs> interest changed and um but uh told erica recently that's something that uh, at least i want to do and hope I mean, and encourage her to consider it but um well, five, five times uh, at, at an event of that distance uh, and that magnitude of epicness, um, you got to have a pretty good story or two. Do you have a good story from, uh, from, from any one of those uh, Pikes Peak marathons? Um, well, I tell a story. I've ended up in the med tent twice. Um, the first time was my third Pikes, hyponatremia. A lot of nervous energy. I was there two hours before race start drinking way too much coffee and, and water. And the day turned out to be 90 degrees. And um, I had um, I had a rough, rough go ahead where um, the um, I had uh, tunnel vision and I was crawling the rock, rock to rock just to get to the top of this thing. And I figured once I get to the top, I can go down because the air gets better. Everything gets better. Well, it was a mess and I ended up in the med tent. My daughters are terrified. Um, I have three girls. My second girl is Gretchen. Um, wanted to give me a banana. She, the, med, the med staff wouldn't let her in. She's, they're, they're scared. Their dad is really hurt. Fast forward to 2010, running the Pikes Peak version, uh, Pikes Peak Marathon. And I'm there to also drop Gretchen off at the University of Denver. So she's there. End up in the med tent again. And she's got pictures of me on social media so fast. Look at my dad. He's laid out again. So um, slightly more comfortable with seeing her dad laid out, getting an IV the second time. Um, but um, but also proud that I've got two of my girls went to school out west. And I think that was born out of our trips and adventures out west and seeing what their father did. Um, other pikes, you know, it... Uh, I've just seen it all. We saw some crazy weather. One time we went out there totally unprepared for weather and we watched the, the ascent. The ascent is the day before and the mountain got rocked with clouds. We were down in the Springs getting uh, poured on lightning right on top of us. And the clouds cleared and the all of Pikes was covered in white. So we knew it had gotten uh, <laughs> showered with snow and ice and oh. We have nothing for this. So we're quickly running. I'm buying women's clothes because that's what I found that fit. Women's gloves and a long sleeve base layer that would fit. And the next day, the marathon got a milder version of the same weather. Um, so both both were put to use. And watching the snow or watching the ice and everything melt, the rain, these uh, water running down the trail, made for a pretty interesting experience that uh, we went out to Colorado totally unprepared for. So, but. <laughs> as, as an outdoor, uh, as an outdoor outfitter, you, you, you think you, you think you would have brought, <laughs> um, you know, more than be, better to have it and not need it than need it to not have it mentality. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so, so having raced there uh, a, a, as many times as you did, um, and I'm sure having the opportunity to uh, to talk to and interact with 
uh, a lot of long timers uh, in terms of people that had, you know, had participated in the event for years and years and years. Um, or, or even, or even, or even a local maybe that had 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 done it a number of times. Um, what was the best advice you ever received about racing the Pikes Peak Marathon? Best advice: um, well, hydration was always a big piece. Coming out there and so dry, um, that that was a big one. Um, Cause it's, it's interesting as you go up and you deal with the thin air and I've discovered that the weird, the fitter I am, the better I handle altitude, but also the more hydrated I am. I've, it's been, but still, you know, I've had great days up at 14,000 feet. I've had some awful days at 14,000 feet. Uh, I went out, I raced, uh, the, um, U-Rock, um, hundred K in Copper Mountain, um, a few years ago and uh, had a miserable experience because most of that was eight to 10,000 feet where Pikes is up and down. This just hovered, stayed right there at those higher altitudes. And um, my stomach was, was not having it. Um, so, you know, I, as far as advice goes, you know, I, the training piece of it goes strong. You, you've got to handle that kind of descent. Half of Pikes peaks at 14%. So when you're descending that over, that kind of mileage, um, that is a different kind of training than you can, that, that is easy to find here in Rochester as well. Um, so really focusing on that, the strength piece and doing, uh, because that mountain will eat you up if you haven't spent some time preparing for that kind of descent. Yeah. Having the opportunity to, uh, to coach uh, a handful of athletes, um, to take on that challenge. These are, these are new England athletes. Um, uh, the, the combination of, uh, of the acclimatization that is not going to occur, uh, training at sea level and, and going out and racing at those elevations. Um, uh, you know, you know, as well as the sustained ascent and descent, we just, we, we just don't have, uh, climbs, uh, that are that long around here. I always felt like there was, a, there was a significant challenge, not, clearly not something that's not, that can't be overcome. I mean, you're, you're a good example of that. You can live and train uh, at or near sea level uh, and still complete these activities. But, um, but I do think uh, I, I, I agree with you that the hydration piece is, is key. You always need to drink more than you think you need to drink at elevation um, because of, because of the, the challenges of staying hydrated. One, one last quick follow-up question um, to, to Pike's peak. Um, did you ever go out early, Mort, uh, you know, say a week before uh, to try to get a couple of activities done at elevation? Or were you, were you uh, show up uh, in the Colorado Springs area, uh, you know, the day before and race the next day? You know, I never had the luxury of going out there an extended period of time. Um, I did actually, but prior to the first pikes, I did have the... Uh, um, the chance to speak with Frank Shorter. He was in Rochester who lives in Boulder and I spoke with him about my plans. And his suggestion was get right to the summit and do a workout of some kind. So I did do that year one. Uh, we drove up to the top because like many mountains, Pikes has that ability. You can drive all the way up. And I simply just ran around the parking lot a little bit just to see how that would feel. I mean, but yes, I was also my youngest for any of these. Yes, I was, I think I worked the hardest and fittest for this. So I had a, my best experience, fastest experience was the first one, but I did 
and the only time I used Frank's wisdom to to actually get up there and uh, and do a mini. It was a very short run, but still run around up the top a little bit. But otherwise, I never had the the luxury of going out too far ahead of time. And some friends tried to show up immediately before uh, they had read that that sometimes works better at altitude. But I also I always wanted a vacation. You know, I you know I figure after the race I'm going to be pretty thrashed. So what am I going to want to do after? So I almost always went out Tuesday or Wednesday prior to the race to experience Colorado. I have family out there um, that there were things I wanted to do. And okay, if it impacts my marathon a bit, all right, well, I I think it still depends more on what I do leading up to that than if I get out there Tuesday, you know what? It's it. That's just the way I chose to do it. I, and again, I, I I want to, there's more I want to experience just the marathon itself. And the marathon was the reason to go and a big, very, very important to me. But I also, there's all the other stuff with who I brought with me that I wanted to share Colorado with prior to the race. Yeah. I mean, I really think that unless you, unless you can show up a month ahead of time, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're not going to acclimatize, uh, in less than a week for sure. And, and it's maybe even arguable that you're going to have a hard time acclimatizing, uh, even less than two weeks. I did have an athlete a few years ago, um, uh, who, who retired. And so he, uh, he was afforded the luxury of, of heading out to Colorado whenever he wanted to. So he went out, uh, about a month, about a month early, and our approach was um, rather than heading all the way uh, to the summit of Pikes Peak uh, to exert himself. Um, what 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 my approach was um, was to um, uh, was to was to stay a little bit lower. In fact, um, you know, uh, in the area where he was staying, I, I think it was above seven thousand feet. Anyhow. Um, you know, the higher you go, the, the, the more impact that the elevation is going to have on your ability to, to, uh, to, to exert yourself. In other words, your, your activity intensity, your ability to exert yourself is compromised at those higher altitudes. And so while, uh, you know, while the, the partial pressure of oxygen is much lower at those altitudes, and so therefore, you know, the, the theory, I suspect, would be that it's going to stimulate the adaptation quicker. Truth is, you, you can't exert yourself at, at, you know, at, at any significant intensity at, at those altitudes. But if you go down lower in, intense, in, in elevation, you can maintain a reasonably high activity intensity um, and still get the, the benefits of, a, of acclimatization. So that's actually what his approach was. His, his, um, he, he tended to exert himself you know, somewhere between seven and 8,000 feet. Um, which okay. afforded him the ability to, you know, to, to execute a, a, you know, a reasonably moderate to hard activity intensity while still doing it at, uh, at, at elevation. And then uh, <laughs> what I would have him do is to, is to actually go to, to the summit of Pikes Peak and have lunch so, or, or a picnic. So he would spend time at elevation, but he was just having a picnic. Um, uh, and then, of course, and then, of course, sleeping, uh, you know, at at seven to eight thousand feet where he was staying. So that that was our approach. And, and frankly, mm-hmm. I, I, for me as an exercise physiologist, that's my approach to, to training at altitude um, is, you know, if you go too high, your activity intensity is going to suffer. And and so theoretically, your training effect is going to suffer as well. Right. Um, 
more you mentioned goose adventure racing you know in in some ways i feel like i feel like we're living parallel lives <laughs> goose adventure racing and and acidotic racing are very similar in many ways um, um tell the listener uh more about what what goose adventure racing is uh um how did it get started you you mentioned it a little bit but uh how did it get how did it get how did it get started and 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 what is goose adventure racing well, Tim Rutowski and I are the founders. Uh, goose actually is from Get Out Outdoor Sports and Experiences. So that's where that uh, the goose comes from. It's no love of the bird. but um, And we started uh, the Muddy Sneaker in year 2000 after you know, we had raced pikes. We had raced um, uh, an event in Michigan together. And we felt our area lacked the kind of trail race we really enjoyed doing. Uh, Tim had hiked in this area we use it's called the high tour wildlife management area so it's a land essentially set aside for hunting um about an hour south of rochester uh, he had hiked down there more than i had and um pieced together a course on trails i wasn't really all that familiar with but we we wanted to again we wanted an event that really reflected us um and we pulled that together in a short period of time. We finally decided that should happen April 2000. And we started putting it together in January. So in four months, we scrambled and, and put this event together. Two guys who had never directed a race before. Who do we talk to? And, um, and we had, I think, 67 people show up that first year. Um, Runner's World somehow got a hold of it after that very first year that this is something you should do. We've sold out every year since. We just had the 22nd running of that this past April. Um, this year was amazing in that it felt like a reunion. You know, we hadn't had a spring race, the spring sneaker since 2019. We had a fall 21 version of it with a small number of people, um, just people that had rolled over from all the canceled versions of it prior. But um, it was so cool to to have so many people back. We had a lot of our previous winners back. We um, we had a reunion, and it was it was it was awesome this past year. Um, but going back to the goose adventure racing, we we added snowshoe racing um, two years later, and uh, we just started calling ourselves goose adventure racing. And we are both the event. We have the event management side. And we also race together as a team in adventure races. Um, we don't currently direct an adventure race, but we think what we do is pretty adventurous. And like I said, we do compete together as a team. Uh, there are five, five guys and one, uh, one uh, and um, we have Laura, um, our female. Erica races as well under our banner, but Laura Weber, who uh, adventure races with us as well. So we've got an active group of, of us and significant others that are, like we, we've discussed, up for just about anything, whether it's paddle racing, there's a lot of orienteering racing going right going on right now that the guys are actively uh, doing. And so. I think, I think one of the greatest challenges as an event director is, um, is finding volunteers. You know, the, the, the truth is that um, that the events that we host really only exist because of the volunteers. I mean, I you, you know, as a race director, you can't do everything. You can't be everywhere on race day. And you really 
as race directors, we, we, we rely on, on volunteers. Um, where have you historically uh, drawn volunteers from? Where, where, do they, where do they come from? How do you recruit volunteers? How do you get people to show up uh, and give of their time and of themselves uh, to help put on these events? Well, it starts with family. Um, <laughs> my girls grew up working at races and they, they still do if they're not racing themselves. Um, but we each have family that steps in and um, without hesitation, but it's part of that community piece that people love. And I, I don't want to say anything disparaging about the road community, but I think in the trail community, it's not that hard. Um, at least we worked hard at a, at a great community and there are people who are injured, who are otherwise not racing, who are so quick to step up and offer their time. Um, it, a few social media posts and, um, and it happens, you know, we have organized ourselves better in that we'll offer a volunteer page on our registration page. So, Hey, you want to volunteer, please fill this out. So we know that what you're interested in doing and we have an idea of a head count. And that also reinforces that commitment. I think if someone signs up, they're likely to be there. Or otherwise, you kind of overstaff yourself with volunteers, knowing that life's going to happen for a few. And you you may get 10, 10 people have offered to volunteer, but maybe only six show up. But if you have that sign up piece that uh, we find that kind of reinforces the commitment and they're more likely to show up. But um, we are fortunate in that it's usually we're not usually scrambling at the end to offer to to um, have people help us out. Yeah, it's always um, um, it, it's always a tenuous position to be in as a race director. To, yeah, yeah, to need two or three uh, 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 volunteers at the last minute. I mean, it always works out. Um, I mean, I you know for for us uh, with Asadotic Racing, the uh, the team, the Asadotic Racing community. Um, was the reason that, that, that our events were possible. Um, yes. you know, when, when you have a community of hundred to 150, uh, members, uh, it's not that difficult to find five volunteers out of a hundred, out of a community of, of 150 plus people. Um, and oftentimes it, it was the same five to 10 people that would volunteer. Um, but, but either way for us, <clears throat> our community supported, uh, our, uh, events uh, and it, it it always seemed to to work really well. One of the thing that uh, or one thing that uh, that New England um, uh, trail and mountain race uh, races are are uh, uh, witnessing or observing this year um, is their participation numbers are down slightly, mm -hmm. um, uh, either year over year or uh, or 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 certainly uh, versus pre-pandemic. Um, what, what have you seen in terms of, in terms of participation numbers this year uh, in your area? Are they, are they robust? Are they down? Are they up? What are you seeing uh, in terms of uh, participation? In, I mean, speaking to trail specifically, what I have a hand on um, numbers are up. Thankfully we have a, uh, trail race, a May trail race through the shop, Medved Madness, that did quite well. Um, 
and it was our return to mass starts. Everybody's you know, starting together as opposed to last year, we did a staggered start version of the race. Um, but that did quite well. Uh, it was up among it, the best numbers ever for that race. Uh, Muddy Sneaker, thankfully, continues to sell out. It sold out this year. And interestingly enough, we had fewer people ever uh, drop out. So we had our highest number of finishers we've had in some time. Um, so that, you know, in both those cases, we're, we're, we're fortunate. Um, but from what I gather, the races I've been experienced that I'm not directing have the loss of Clayton. Ian Golden, Red Meat Racing out of Ithaca. He just had his event at Whiteface, and I'm told it's one of the largest mountain running championships uh, ever that did quite well. Um, his event, uh, the Cayuga 50 that Erica raced a um, month, six weeks ago, uh, numbers were solid there. Um, and then closer to home, Trails Rock, uh, many on the Jenny 40 miler down in Letchworth. Um, told had great numbers, I believe, sold out. So we're things trends are are good in our area for the trail events. Yeah, and may, and maybe it's maybe it's just maybe it's just uh, uh, you know specific races uh, here in New England. I, I I don't really have a, a a good handle on that. I'm just I'm just hearing scuttlebutt about okay. uh, some events and uh, and participation numbers being down um uh we hosted um our exeter trail race which did you ever run our exeter trail race several times yeah Yeah, you did um so we uh we just hosted our exeter trail race recently um having not hosted it in two years uh and our participation numbers were way off of where they had been previously Mm -hmm. um uh and we've got um we've we've got us uh our our Kingman farm, uh, trail race coming up, um, at, at the beginning of August. So time will tell about, about that event. And then, and then our two mountain races in the fall, hard to tell right now from, uh, pre-reg numbers where we'll, where we will, uh, end up. Um, uh, but, but m- my own personal and professional forecast is that our numbers are going to be, are going to be down a little bit. And I'm not really quite sure what the explanation is. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of your, uh, event management schedule, uh, or calendar, uh, what else do you guys have going on this year? Uh, do you have any other events, uh, that, that you have, that you're planning to host this year? We do not. We have decided that, uh, we typically have two other summer trail races and, um, that for different reasons, we're all at different stages of our life where um, that we just simply haven't found time to uh, pull these off. And we still also, we're, we're still running into some limitations with permission in some areas. Uh, yeah, I think uh, an extension of COVID policies and that um, some private landowners are not interested in sharing their space right now. Um, so between that and just haven't found the time um, to pull off the other events. We, it is just the muddy sneaker right now. We'll see about snowshoe going forward, whether we feel there's any energy behind that and it makes sense to bring any of those events back. Um, But we'll revisit the other trail races in 23. Um, But for now it is just the muddy sneaker third Saturday in April. 
Got it. Yeah, we 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 had a similar experience for an event that we typically host in the spring, which we did not host this year. The uh, the venue, the landowner, which, of course, they have the prerogative to come up with any you know guideline or requirement that they want. It's their venue. Um, uh, so earlier this spring, uh, if we were to have hosted that trail race, uh, we were going to have to um, mandate uh, proof of vaccination, um, mm. which I'm, I'm, I'm on board with, with vaccination. <laughs> um, what, what we found, it was just going to be a, uh, a, a sort of, a an uphill challenge, uphill battle, um, in order to, to figure out the logistics of how we, we get people to prove vaccination. And then secondarily, um, you know, there's, there's a segment of the population that's, that's, uh, you know, that, that's still, uh, resistant to vaccination. And what we didn't want to do is, uh, unintentionally, intentionally alienate a, a, a portion of our, uh, of our, of our, uh, our participant pool, um, by, by, by implementing this, this requirement. So we'll, we'll see going forward. I, you know, I suspect next spring, uh, maybe a little bit different in terms of the climate that we're in with respect to the vaccination and vaccination mandates. But, but we actually had a, a similar experience, um, not 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 with respect to permitting, but with respect to the you know a requirement that the venue was going to implement for our participants that we just didn't feel like it was it was worth the time. I, right. I, I want to talk about um, uh, uh, about adventure racing, uh, goose adventure racing. While uh, while it sort of principally stands, at least in, in in my observation, it principally stands as an event management company, a very successful event, event management company. <clears throat> there is an adventure racing team uh, uh, component to it, um, and uh, Asadotic Racing, we you know our our event management company, our our team actually started as an adventure racing team uh, way way back when. So uh, so so we have that that connection. Uh, we we don't adventure race anymore as a team, um, you know. In in part, uh, what 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 we saw um, uh, again through the through the two thousands was that um, adventure racing sort of hit its zenith here in the Northeast. Uh, you know, mid two thousands, um, there were a lot of events. Uh, you know, in the summertime. Uh, well, th there were probably, you know, uh, in New England, there probably were were three or four event management companies that were putting on adventure races from six hour races all the way up to 24 hour races and actually a handful of stage races at that time, too. But it wasn't hard in the summertime if you wanted to adventure race to find an adventure race, whether it was an urban adventure race like in Concord, New Hampshire or Portland, Maine uh, or uh, or a more wilderness experience. Right. Uh um, in, uh, in, in, uh, Eastern New York, Connecticut or Rhode Island. Um, but then, then the, uh, the number of events began to diminish and it became much more difficult to find adventure races here in New England. I'm curious what, what, what your observation has been in terms of the, the sport of adventure racing, um, since, since you've been involved with it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen something similar in that there are fewer events. You have to be willing to travel if you're going to be an adventure racer. I think uh, a couple things are at play there. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's you don't get the recreational 
competitor like you would in say any road race or in some of the trail races. Um, these, uh, you have the gear that it requires. So there's an investment there. Um, and the time commitment, um, most of the events now that we even look at, we rarely travel for anything shorter than 24 hours. Um, but that requires being away from home for three or four days dedicated to just racing. There's no, not a lot of time for a vacation around that unless you, unless you have that luxury. Um, but by their nature, these things are, are pretty hard. So you're talking about committed athletes who, um, can push themselves for that length of time. And that eliminates a lot of the recreational users because there, there aren't those six hour races and ultimately it's kind of niche. So you're not going to have big numbers. So then it becomes, is it worth doing it? Um, what do you have to charge? Cause it's an expensive sport to direct as well to manage. And um, the entry fees are cost prohibitive sometimes too. So um, yeah, we know that, you know, that's why we're, we, we're going to travel. We only do so many per year because the, the, because of the expense involved in travel time. Um, there's some great events on the West coast I'd like to do, but, uh, that's another thing flying with a, with a bike is to start off with. But, um, there are thankfully still some great events that are within a day's drive of Rochester that, um, that we keep on the calendar and there's some expedition stuff coming back the next year or two that uh, I've got my eyes on and the team has their eyes on, but the sport itself um, reaches a small population for all the reasons that I mentioned. And um, I'm not sure that it'll grow. You know, we've got, we're, there's a grassroots effort in our area some new faces that are trying both paddling and mountain biking um, that, have a running background, you know, it's very similar stories to the, to us, but it's the next generation, the 30 somethings that are, they're trying these sports. So hopefully it'll continue and we'll see some of these people start to show up at some of the races that uh, we've been participating in. Yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that the, that the, that, that the decline in uh, the number of adventure races here in the Northeast. And so therefore, uh, the, the number uh, in terms of participation. I don't think it's any coincidence that, that the decline in adventure racing um, coincided with the rise in Spartan-type racing, yeah. obstacle course racing, to your point. True. Um, you know, I mean, obstacle course racing um, at that time, I think, I think fit a really important need um, and that was this sort of group shared experience. Now, mm -hmm. now adventure racing, of course, uh, you know, it, some, some of my most epic stories of racing is, uh, are related to adventure racing with my brother. Just some of the most calamitous, just funny, uh, you know, ridiculous stories, um, were born out of, uh, adventure racing experiences. Yeah. And so really, um, it is about that group shared experience. But a but an obstacle course race is just it, it's a much easier get for people, um, recreational participants. To your point, you don't really have. Yes, there are elite there are elite level obstacle course races, but the majority of participants are not elite level. They're sometimes weekend warriors uh, who don't don't you don't need a significant gear list to do an obstacle course race. You just show up with sneakers on. They give you a headband and and off you go. And so right. you, you you can have 
a very similar experience um, mm -hmm. uh, with far fewer obstacles. So I don't think that there's a coincidence that the decline in adventure racing coincided with the rise in obstacle course racing. Do you see that as, as, as being true? I think you're spot on. Yeah. You, you had, you, like you just said, it has a lot of the, the experiences are much the same the physical challenges that the, the um, all that obstacle racing offers you can experience during an AR without all the gear, just like you said, show up with a pair of shoes and you can do it solo. You can do it, do it as a team, much like adventure racing. And it gets, it gets you way out of your comfort zone for, depending on the athlete. And um, so I think you're spot on with that and that uh, much of it is the experiences are shared, but um, much easier to that. The Spartan audience can, can be much wider, whereas the AR um, less so. Well, I also think too, the last point that I'll make about that is that um, the, the obstacle course race model um, is, is, is really so smart and clever in so many ways. Um, you know, with, 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 an, with adventure racing, there's a fixed number of, of people per team, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, two person teams, three, four, five person teams, but with obstacle course racing, it's encouraged that you show up with a large group of your friends and the, the larger your group of friends that shows up at these things, the greater the shared experience mm -hmm. and, as a, as an event director that, you know, the, <laughs> that's an improvement to my bottom line. If I can get, right. if I can get, uh, you know, one person to bring 15 friends, um, then my participation numbers are going to grow exponentially. It's much more difficult, uh, in, in, in a fixed number of participants format like adventure racing, because I've got to, I've got to recruit more teams. Um, yeah. uh, but, but, but again, this, this obstacle course racing model is, is just so clever, uh, were you ever tempted as an event, uh, as an event organizer to get into obstacle course race directing? You know, that was not something I felt like I really needed to do. I, I love natural obstacles. I love races. That I got to run through creeks and rivers, uh, jumping over trees that are down, things like that. But, you know, I wasn't super psyched to get electrocuted or, um, you know, I, I'd love strength component of adventure racing. I love getting into the boat and paddling hard. But the other stuff, no, that wasn't uh, that wasn't really on my radar so much. I mean, I respect it, and we've got customers in, and I totally get why they're super excited about it. But it's not my thing, you know. I natural obstacles, absolutely, but um, the, the yeah, <laughs> come back to the electrocuting part, um, the wires and all that. Um, no, not as much, and then it seemed to transition from a pretty hardcore athlete to these t large teams that you're talking about. And you hear stories. Well, I, we just skipped that one. Well, you know, so the competitor and he's like, how do you skip an element? Okay. Then it, oh, I, okay. I, all right. You just want to finish it. You chose what you want to do and not. And it's more about the camaraderie of your group. And that's, what's special for you. And awesome. That's what it should be. But I, you know, I, um, if you miss a checkpoint in adventure racing, we spent a lot of time <laughs> um, really struggling with, we, sh we want, oh, we shouldn't, oh, we don't have time. Ah, and it's, we, we're disappointed if we can't go to checkpoint as opposed to, now, no, we just didn't want to do that one. I think the, yeah, I think the mentality is, uh, is, yeah. is so different. Um, yeah. 
and you, you, you know, as it, as it relates to, um, you know, putting on new and different events as an event uh, organizer, I think it's I think it's really important that as event organizers we stick to our values because yeah. otherwise our our customers become confused, right? So if you know if yeah. Goose Adventure Racing is known as uh, you know as a as a trail race uh, snowshoe race leader, if all of a sudden you're getting into things that are sort of outside of that, your customer begins to begins to become confused as to what, what are they really all about? And it, and then I think it becomes pretty transparent that uh, it's about the money and it's not mm-hmm. about the love of, of sport. And I think, I think you lose some credibility in the space. I think you, you lose authenticity in the space yeah. when you begin to deviate from your, from your core mission. That's principally why we never got involved with it, even though we were actually offered an early entry into the Spartan space um at the very beginning of that uh, of that phenomena and uh and <laughs> i turned it down you know I, there certainly there are times in which i i wonder if that was the right decision because uh um from a financial standpoint that is i mean one of the most successful business mm-hmm. models that has ever been ever been created joe decina uh really is a genius uh in in that in that regard um, but, it, but it, but it didn't fit with our core mission. It didn't fit with our value proposition. Uh, our customers would not have understood. Um, and so, and so we, um, we ended up making the decision rightly or wrongly. I think, I think rightly in this case, not, not to pursue, uh, ops of course racing. Um, Mort, this, this conversation of your, uh, of, of your experience in the, uh, in the retail space, uh, your experience as a as an endurance athlete and your experience as a race director has, has been a fascinating conversation. It, it was exactly as I expected that it would be, and I'm I'm so glad that we had the opportunity uh, to sit down. I want to finish with a, a fun little segment of my show called Three Random Questions." Uh, this gives me the opportunity to uh, uh, to ask you some things that uh, that aren't necessarily related at least directly <laughs> to the things that we've talked about, but I think are, 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 are fun conversation uh, openers. But if you'll do this for the listener, uh, will you verify that you have not received these three questions in advance? Absolutely. I have not. <laughs> okay, here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Random question uh, number one for Mort Nace. Mort, you've traveled all around the U.S. Uh, what's your favorite state to visit and why? I have to get back to Montana. I was fortunate. I got to do the rut. I fell in love with Bozeman uh, a few years ago, and uh, it's been my one and only trip to Montana. There's still a lot left to explore. Uh, I'd love to run the rut again. Um, My family and I are headed to Nevada and California here shortly. I'm super excited. Colorado, it's been too long since I've been there, but Montana right now is uh, one I have to get back to. I haven't been to Missoula yet. I haven't been to uh, Glacier yet. So um, there's still so much more to explore, but I fell in love with Bozeman um, back in 2018. I've got a, I've got a, a good friend that, uh, that moved out to Montana a few years ago and uh, uh, he, he posts pictures all of the time. And uh, 
it, it's actually a state that I, I've not had the, the opportunity to visit. So that's on my, on my bucket list as well. Um, all right, random question number two, Mort. Your life has been made into a movie. When I search for it on demand, what category will I find it in? Will I find it in action, drama, or comedy? Um, I let's go with with drama. That, um... Okay, that's that's really interesting because as I was thinking about that question and I was thinking about you, that was not the category that I I would have picked. So please, please to explain. Um. Hopefully there are facets of the others in there as well, but term of drama, sure. it, um, sure. I've, I've managed to surround myself with a fair amount of drama in my life. And, uh, and I think a lot of what we do, what I hopefully have become better at is managing misery in the, <laughs> you know, it's, um, there are lessons in that and they are that my teammates handle better than I. And thankfully, thankfully they've, uh, they keep me around still, but, um, there's there's that um um so it's yeah i think um just highs and lows and um life requires a requires what it does and uh, i think uh I can be, I guess I'm known as being fairly serious. So it's um, maybe, maybe drama might fit it best. Well, we, you know, we, we talk uh, a, a, about um, the, the contrast between, uh, between light and dark uh, as, as part of the teachings of the rock warriors way and how important it is um, uh, that, uh, that we experience adversity because it's, you know, it's, it's the darkness that makes the light lighter. Uh, it's the it's the it's the happy it's the sad times in our life that makes that makes the happy times even more pleasurable. Like sure. like that contrast is really important. Um, uh, as difficult as it is sometimes to to understand the reason and the purpose for adversity, um, I, I I do think it it's what it's what makes the, the good times just that much more enhanced uh, and, and that much more, that much more pleasurable. I mean, you know, what, what, a, what a gray world we would live in if, there, if that contrast didn't exist, right? right. So, um, so, so I, I mean, you know that I, I talk about adversity and adversity training and the benefit of, of adversity training a lot. Um, more random question number three and the, and the last question I have for you today. This is kind of a it's kind of a, a philosophical one a little bit, um, but it's a really it's a question I enjoy asking people. So I have a time machine in my garage. If you could spend three seconds in the future, or three hours in the past, which would it be, and when, where, and why? Three seconds in the future. In other words, just a glimpse of the future or the ability to go back at any point in time and spend three hours. Which way are you going? Well, I guess I don't feel as if I want to impact where I've come from um, with all that's learned and, you know, much of it not perfect. Um, but uh, 
if I could have three seconds to see my 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 steps and my grands um, as adults, maybe for a moment that I'm not likely to be around for, and um, maybe see if there's any legacy. Um, what my daughters have shared with me as adults has been pretty special. And um, so I think fast forwarding to a moment where I can see how my grands and my steps exist as adults would be, have a little snapshot of that would be pretty cool. I think that's um, probably the most selfless answer I have heard to that question. Um, in other words, not, not going ahead in time and seeing your fate, Mm. but projecting beyond yourself and um, being able to experience of, of, of just a, just a, a glimpse of time in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that's actually a, that's a, that's a quite prophetic answer more. I really appreciate this conversation. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for being on the show. I'm grateful to be included. It's an honor. Um, thank you for the time. Thank you. Well, it certainly sounds like Mort might add to those five finishes at the Pikes Peak Marathon. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about is how much he's positively impacted my coaching business. He has personally sent at least a dozen Western New York athletes my way over the years. I'm really grateful for his support. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.